0: and um, the Holy Spirit I always think of the Holy Spirit as a but I always think of the Holy Spirit as the modest member of the Trinity you know he's, he's, his task is basically to reveal Christ lead us into all truth uh, change our lives um, we, we don't notice the change but um, he, other folk notice the change When the Holy Spirit comes into our lives and we've got a duty. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians 5.18. He says, don't get drunk. (laughs) And I mean, I knew quite a lot about drunkenness. I used to be sent to the pub on a Saturday night to collect my father. and walk him home along the canal bank in case he fell in the canal. My mother said, and he was six feet tall and about 15 stone, and I was just a wee laddie standing outside, catching the waft of the beer coming out of the pub, not allowed to go in uh, in those days. And I used to think... What will I do if he falls into the canal? And I used to have to lead him home every Saturday night. Um, don't get drunk, you know, um, but be filled with the Spirit. Now some folk think being filled with the Spirit is like getting drunk. It's not a, a vast difference between uh, alcohol and the Holy Spirit. You know, alcohol... Oh, I've got a wonderful word I'm going to use tonight. Pharmacologically, (laughs) how do you like that, eh? Pharmacologically, um, alcohol is a depressant. But the Holy Spirit is a stimulant. There's the greatest possible contrast. And then he says, don't get drunk, be, he says, be filled. He says, don't get drunk, we're in his excess, but Be filled with the Holy Spirit, you know, and he uses, it's absolutely an amazing sentence, that wee bit of a sentence there, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, because it's it's in the imperative mood, it's a command, it's not an option, it's a command, God wants us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and it's in the plural number. That, it, it's a plural that means it's not just for a little elite who have inter- interests in spiritual matters it's for the whole family of God um, it's plural and then it's, it's not only imperative mood and plural number, it's passive voice be filled you know the difference between active and passive active is when you do something passive is when something does somebody does something for you Um and uh, Jock Troop, he was once waylaid by a, a cynical n- newspaper reporter, and he said, uh, where do these revivals come from anyway, Mr. Troop? And Jock had hands. His, I met his next door neighbour once and he told me he could lift a fully inflated football with one hand, Neighbour, bother so Jock Troop grabbed the support and by the lapels and made him kneel down and he said they come from God <laughs> and uh, this is true um, the Holy Spirit is God's gift to us in the church um, it's from God, isn't that something you work up and it's, it's present tense isn't Greek grammar wonderful it's present tense it's usually continuous and more continuous than um, one off in, in the whole of the New Testament it means keep on being filled if you read the story of the miracle in John chapter 2 when Jesus uh, tells uh, the servants to fill up the jars, he says, fill the jars, and he uses an aorist tense. An aorist tense is punctiliar in Greek grammar. That means it's a point tense. There's no time reference. It's a one-off. But he doesn't use the aorist here. He uses the present. Continues, keep on being filled. Not like the jars, one-off. Keep on being filled. By the Holy Spirit. There was in a church recently, and somebody was asked to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, and this person talked about the Holy Spirit and referred to the Holy Spirit at least ten times as it. And that grated in my spirit, because although tonuma in Greek is neuter, every time the Lord Jesus. Talks about the Holy Spirit, especially in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16. um, Every time he refers to the Holy Spirit, he doesn't use the neuter, he uses the masculine. The Holy Spirit is a person, he's not a thing, he's not an it. He's not what an American scholar I once read said the Holy Spirit is a quasi material fluid, you know, like syrup or honey or something like that. (laughs) He's a person. And we have to be filled by the Holy—that's nothing to do with what I was going to say tonight. If you've got your Bible with you, uh, please could you turn to Hebrews? <laughs> We're really on Hebrews tonight, but I thought be fun on uh, the Holy Spirit's special day. Uh, Hebrews, and uh, we'll read chapter two, verse one, a few verses. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding and even viol- and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation which was first announced by the Lord was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about that which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. And putting everything under him, God left nof- nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. And that's true, isn't it? But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honour, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their suffering perfect, sorry, the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. What a wonderful passage. That is the first week we spoke about Apollos. Remember, that seems ages ago. We spoke about Apollos, um, and then the second week we had a look at this—the idea of the superiority of Jesus. That everything that's gone before is better than the prophets, superior to the angels superior to Moses, superior to Joshua, superior to the the ancient laws of sacrifice in the Old Testament and the Aaronic priesthood and uh, he outstrips them all and surpasses them all and so for the last two nights I thought I'd speak tonight on uh, who Jesus is um, the letter to the Hebrews rests on two great pillars, like the Golden Gate Bridge or the Clifton Suspension Bridge, that's near Bristol, isn't it? Uh, well, the two great pillars on which it rests are, first of all, who Jesus is, and secondly, what Jesus wants. So it's absolutely tremendous. And tonight, we'll do part one, hopefully who Jesus is, he's the son of God um, God has spoken through him, verse 1 he, fo- he spoke through the prophets, the Greek is polymero- Polychronos and polymeros in at different times and in different ways or I would translate it in fits and starts and bits and pieces <laughs> it was a spasmodic a visitation of God through the prophets but in these last days it's a steady revelation of God through his son. He's the last word. He's the appointed heir whom he appointed heir of all things. He's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and that's the the majesty of of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know in that morning service where the girl spoke at least ten times of it. In reference to the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus was presented as a superhero. Like Captain Marvel. But he was never referred to as the Lord Jesus Christ. And I thought the poor children here have been away with a wrong impression. A, 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 a diluted, imperfect impression of who the Lord Jesus is is the Lord Jesus Christ God's appointed heir and he's the great creator sort of, P.S. by the way through whom he made the universe you know and if you go back to Genesis 1 in the story of creation is the word of God active in creation and right through it you've got it's like a Sankey hymn Genesis 1 they've got repeated choruses and there was evening and there was morning the first day and, it, and God said right you get that littered right through the chapter. And when God said here was the word um, that John refers to in his, his gospel at the start, um, nothing was made that was made that was made apart from him. Right? He's the he's the great creator. He's the radiant light bearer. The sun is the radiance of God's glory. What a wonderful phrase that is. I love it, it warms the cockles of my heart. It's a special word that doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament, as far as I know. And uh, the scholars say it was an Alexandrian word. Remember how I told you that Apollos came from Alexandria? Well, Philo was a great philosopher and Jewish scholar in Alexandria. And he, he, uh, referring to the Logos, he uses this phrase, I think, apogasma is the Greek word. It it means um, the light bearer like if you think of um, a ray of sunlight coming in that window um, that ray of sunlight is not simply the bearer of light the the, the ray of sunlight is the embodiment of light bringing light to us personally if you like through the ray of sunshine Um, um, Christ we do not merely hear about God we meet him Uh, he did not only come to reveal God; He is God in Revelation. Wonderful! He's He's the apogasma. He's the the radiance of God's glory. And then He uses another word, and the exact representation of His being in connection with the image of God revealed to to us. He uses the Greek word character. You know, we've got the word character, haven't we? The character was the, the representation of a person's uh, authority on a piece of wax when a, when a document was sealed with wax and they would have a signet ring and go like that and impress on the wax the image of the, of the signet. It's an exact rep- He said he's the exact representation. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Remember what he said to Philip. Have you been so long with me, Philip, and yet you haven't known me? Philip said, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. And Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So that's, he moves on. It's absolutely terrific. Jesus is the Son of God, and that's all in the first Three verses. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Um, everything hangs together in him, Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, like knitting, you know. And the, Paul says in Colossians, every, And God, when he made the universe, he worked a pattern. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the cosmos. He's the principle of cosmos in a chaotic world. He he reveals God's pattern of things as it should be. Um, Wonderful. What a wonderful person he is. He sustains all things. He, it, it all coheres, is the word that's used. You could translate in Colossians 1. Everything coheres in him. He makes sense of it all. In this chaotic world, when you, you read about what's going on, everything hangs together in Christ. He's the radiant bear in the Father's image and the constant sustainer. And then, verses 10 to 11 of chapter 2, Moving quickly on, um, 10 and 11, he's the Savior, the Father's plan in bringing many sons to glory. That's God's purpose in our lives. That's God's purpose for those that we see who need him so much in today's society. What's God's purpose? He wants to bring them to glory. It's to bring many sons and daughters to Glory. And every time you look at somebody this week, think, God wants to bring them to glory. No matter how depraved and sad and upsetting it is, he wants to bring them to glory. Um, The Father has a plan. It was fitting that God, and you've got the prepositions piling up again, for whom and through whom everything exists, is absolutely loaded Hebrews. Every phrase is worth noting. For whom and through whom everything exists, his plan and his power to bring people to glory. The plan and the power is personalized in Christ. He should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. And he uses another unusual word, I think it only occurs, it occurs in chapter 12, verse 2, where Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Remember the beginning of chapter 12, you know, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses and so on. And so on. that passage there, uh, that Christ is the pioneer and perfecter. And it's an unusual word, this. Uh, it's the author, is it, here? Ah, uh, the author. It's the pioneer in chapter 12 verse 2 and it's it's the leader like um, to want an Old Testament uh, image it would be Joshua you know how Joshua went into the promised land after Moses death and he led the people into the promised land he was the leader and Joshua was one of the two spies that gave a good report There were ten gave a bad report, two gave a good report. And he was in the land and he saw all the difficulties of ever conquering or living in that land of of Canaan. But the glory of the thing was, he came back and led the people into Canaan. Um, And he was given success in the venture. And so, well the Lord Jesus has done that for us. He came to earth and lived amongst sinful men and uh, he endured such contradiction of sinners against himself but eventually he went ahead died on the cross, rose from the dead calls us to glory what a wonderful phrase that is the author of our salvation he made him perfect through suffering hey wait a minute was he not perfect at the start? Of course he was. He was the son of God and he never relegated that role at any instant of time. But in, in the terms of human growth, he was a real human being. And he learned through the sufferings that he went through. And his sufferings are way beyond what we can ever imagine. Because our sensitivities are blunted through sin and damaged and corrupted and were unfeeling in a lot of ways I mean Jesus was in the crowd one day and a woman touched him and he said who touched me and uh, the disciples said oh come on Lord look they're all bumping into you here and uh, he recognised the touch of a lady in need. he was so sensitive and um, one of the theologians what's his name McIntosh says um The Lord Jesus was so sensitive that temptation for him was excruciating torture because he sensed the evil of it in a way that we don't. And he went through it yet without sin, is one of the phrases used in Hebrews. Um, The Father's plan, the Father's power, and the Son's authority, the author of our salvation, he's our leader, it's great to have good leaders, isn't it? The, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is that He's a perfect leader, um, and He suffered. The Son's authority, the author, um, and also He became perfect through suffering, uh, and that joins Him to us. Uh, the writer, I, I think, the guy that wrote the letter to the Hebrews, a wonderful teacher. He said, that links him to us. The one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the one stock of the one family, is the translation in NIV. And then he's the helper. Chapter 2, verse 17 through to chapter 3. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. He's the helper. There's a man who worked for the, the deep sea mission to, the, the mission to deep sea fishermen, Alf Evans. And Alf Evans was leader of a, a work in Methyl in Fife. And Alf Evans before he went there he was involved in a car crash. The the reason was he got a, a puncture on his journey one night and he got out to change the wheel and the next thing he wakened up in the hospital. A car had hit him and and crashed into him. And he said later on they should really have amputated this leg. Um, it was a useless limb. And he he spent months in hospital getting all patched up. And somebody said to me, Alf Evans is the best hospital visitor I ever came across. He can walk into a hospital ward and immediately identify with patients in a hospital ward because he's been through it all. And the Lord Jesus Christ went through it all for us. That's the passage there. He's our helper his perfect humanity his perfect service his perfect sacrifice his perfect sympathy his perfect sympathy and even in temptation he's able to help those who are being tempted he's a wonderful saviour he's the son of God the saviour, the helper the sympathiser chapter 5 verses 7 to 10 Um, there's a cluster of qualities about him here in chapter 5 verse 7 to 10. During the days of Jesus life on earth he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. He's the crying Christ as our sympathizer. Three times in the New Testament it says Christ Jesus Jesus cried. Did you know that three times? Twice in the Gospels and once here. He cried over a family. He cried over a over a city. First of all, when he looked at Jerusalem, he said, "Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem!" Very serious. Every time a thing's repeated in the New Testament, very serious. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that stoned the prophets and killed those that were sent to you, how often would I have gathered you, your people together, as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. What a beautiful intimate image that is. And it says he wept over the city. And the verb that's used means loud crying. It means audible crying. As well as just weeping and he wept, he cried over a family because he was very very close and friendly to two sisters and a brother Mary, Martha and Lazarus and Lazarus died and the shortest verse in the New Testament is Jesus wept, he wept and that, the verb there means quiet weeping just silent weeping with the tears coursing down his cheeks and the third reference to him crying is here in Hebrews where it's clearly defined that (laughs) it was with strong crying and tears. A combination of both in Hebrews. One over a city, one over a family and one over a tyranny, the tyranny of sin and death in the hearts and lives of human beings. The crying Christ. He cried over a city. He offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears tears. He's a wonderful saviour. The satisfier is chapter 7 verses 26 to 28 is the next thing I've noted. Such a high priest meets our need. I defined the difference between a priest and a prophet the other week. You know, a prophet speaks to men on behalf of God. A, prophet, a priest speaks to God on behalf of men and women. He stands between us and God as our great high priest. He's a high priest who meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. What a wonderful cluster of qualities. And Not all priests are like that. And the Lord Jesus Christ has tremendous sympathy for us, it tells us there. Um, in chapter 7 verses 26 to 28 um, he satisfies us he's a satisfactory priest unlike the other high priests he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people he sacrificed for their sins once for all And that's a great word that appears in Hebrews quite a few times. Sometimes it's just hapax. And sometimes it's compounded and strengthened by the use of a preposition in front of it. That's what they do in Greek. If you want to strengthen something up, you stick a preposition in front of it. And the preposition is f hapax Once for all. Not just once. Once for all time. It was a one-off thing. Um his sacrifice for sin it wasn't the the repeated rigmarole of Old Testament sacrifice with the reek of burning flesh and the smell of blood all over the camp it was a one off thing you know one great act finished the game this move finished the game of God's wonderful plan for our salvation that the Lord Jesus Christ in this wonderful high priest he didn't need to offer all these multiplied sacrifices he sacrificed for their sins once for all oh that's wonderful isn't it the Lord Jesus Christ is a satisfier God was pleased with his sacrifice and God raised him from the dead and he is our satisfier and then there's the blood of Christ in chapter 9 verses 11 to 14 um he came as a high priest and oh it's kind of Hebrews isn't an easy letter you know it's not easy The, the old images come up it helps to explain a lot of the Old Testament ritual to us and it's like golf in a way you know um at Muirfield in the Open Championship one year, it was pelting rain and the wind was howling and the grass was up this length and, and there was this American knocked his ball into the rough and he went into the rough moaning and groaning about Scotland and the weather. <laughs> and this guy says to him, what are you greeting about? He says, it's not meant to be an easy game. <laughs> and so studying Hebrews is not an easy game. He takes up a lot of the imagery of the Old Testament with which we are unfamiliar and he talks about a tabernacle um, and he, he lifts us to a higher plane here because it says it, when Jesus came as high priest of the good things are already here He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place, once for all, by his own blood having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then? Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience so that we may serve the living God? The blood of Christ does it for us powerful blood, it speaks louder things than able Um, it's wonderful and I know there's various arguments about whether uh, the blood in the New Testament means life presented or offered or life laid down the Roman Catholic view is that blood uh, is a word symbol for life offered and that's why Roman Catholic folk go to the mass every Sunday because they believe that through the offices of the priest, channeled down from the Pope and the Cardinals and the Archbishops and the Bishops to the priest, it has enabled the priest miraculously to change the wafer and the wine into the, the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And so when they go to Mass, they're receiving the life of God every Sunday at Mass. They believe that. But the other thought the the Protestant reform thought is that blood in the New Testament and in the Old is a word symbol for death a word symbol for life laid down not life offered and poured out in terms of um, offering us uh, salvation every week in a service Um, it was life laid down you know when, when Jacob saw Joseph's coat covered in blood right away he says An evil beast has devoured him. So the blood was a symbol of death. Joseph's dead. And when the Lord Jesus shed his blood, there was nothing phony or phantom about it. He did it. In fact, I don't know if you've interpreted it like this, but in the Gospels, uh, a soldier thrust a spear into Jesus' side and blood and water came out. Well, to me, that's a kind of symbol that the last drop of blood was spilt. For us the blood of Christ and the submission of Christ I'm finished um, chapter 10 verses 5 to 10 therefore when Christ came into the world he said sacrifice and offering you did not desire but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased then I said here I am It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O my God. Wonderful. It was never less than God and never more than a man. That's Willie Bartley's description of him. Never more than a man, never less than God. He was neither superman or subhuman. He was the only real true human as God intended us to be. And he submitted to the will of God. He said, I always do the will of him that sent me. And when in John chapter 4, when they came back from the, the town, they'd been away buying food. And they said, eh, did you get something to eat? And Jesus said, my nourishment is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work that was his nourishment, he lived on it he submitted to God's will and then you remember his prayer in Gethsemane, nevertheless not my will but yours be done he submitted right down the line and God was pleased at his submission and his sacrifice. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, we thank you for such a wonderful saviour as the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for who Jesus is in the multiplicity of his character, in the glory of his presence, in the obedience which he was obedient to death for us and he wanted to do the father's will right down the line lord help us to trust in this saviour help us to count on this saviour every day help us to cry to this saviour for those around us who need him so much and we pray lord we'll be amazed we shouldn't be amazed but we would pray you will be amazed as you intervene in some lives and bring them to glory. Not because of anything good in us, but because they catch some glimpse of who Jesus is through us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.